You please take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're continuing in our study of the book of Ephesians, and we come to verses 15 through 23 this morning. And again, as we've heard over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at a prayer of Paul's, and the first part was one sentence in the Greek, and those are verses 3 through 14 through us. That's one verse, and it was a, a prayer of praise. And so we come today to the portion where Paul begins to give thanksgiving and intercession uh, for the people that he's praying for, the Ephesians. And so I I want you to kind of keep that in mind as we kind of set up the the process here this morning to unpack the Scripture. So when we talk about prayer, though, I I think if we're honest, it's probably one of the most uh, guilt-ridden kind of things. We, it's probably the thing that most of us do poorly if we're honest in our Christian walks. It's something that we struggle with, especially if we are to be called to pray out loud. Some people are adamantly opposed to that, but it's probably also something we struggle with in our personal lives. It's something that gets kind of shoved to the side sometimes, or uh, sometimes it becomes burdensome to us. Listen to what Chuck Swindoll say says, praying like we mean it means abandoning the prayer lingo. It means opening our hearts before the Lord, abandoning pretense and focusing on Him. It means truly believing that we are entering to the very presence of God, who is listening to our words just like any person with whom we have a conversation during the day. Sadly, too few Christians know how to pray, what to pray for, and why they're doing it. So he says, Paul prayed like a man who meant it, and in doing so, he gives to us a stunning example of genuine prayer within this passage. One pastor said this, if God is so sovereign, then why do we pray so little or so poorly? So that's the quest for us, not to beat us up this morning, but to be encouraged, because that's the point of what Paul writes to us in this prayer. He wants to encourage us, and he's going to show us by giving thanks. He's going to intercede for us, and then he's going to describe to us the power that we have that comes through the Spirit. So hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is to the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. This is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is again one of your great prayers that you have chosen to to keep and give to us as an example of how we should pray. So, Father, truly teach us this morning, and then may we apply it, and may we use it as we begin to give thanks for others, as we begin to intercede for one another, and Lord, as we begin to to realize and comprehend and use the power that has been given to us through the resurrection power of the Spirit, and then living in the church. 
So, Father, you teach us this morning. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing we need to look at is Paul giving thanks. And so what he does is he begins to give thanks as a point of encouragement. He wants to give meaningful spiritual support to them. And so he starts with a thanksgiving, a thanksgiving for their faith and a thanksgiving for their love. Now, does that mean that Paul thinks that they are doing this perfectly? No, because if you continue to read through the passages of Ephesians, he talks about where they've messed up in regards to their faith, where they've messed up in regards to their love. But what he does is he commends to see the good that he sees, even though it's not fully realized yet. Let me give you an illustration. Um, there's Johnny Dewey is a, a, was a member of the congregation that I started with over in Northern Ireland, a part of the Bally Sally community, and then he became um, eventually the youth guy, and now he's a teacher at the local school. Um, but they used to do these video series on Bally Sally for the things that were wrong within Bally Sally, and they did uh, a big special and stuff like that. And I remember Johnny Dewey saying this very specifically, um, of why the church did not give interviews on that piece uh, for, the, for the big camera crews that came in and, and did everything. He says, I'm tired of people always trying to find out what's wrong with Bally Sally. I want to catch what's right within Bally Sally. That's the purpose. And you can talk to, to Tamsin and she'll tell you the story of, of things going over there. But that's what Paul's doing. He's trying to catch what the Ephesians are doing right and so he wants to encourage them in that. And as he wants to encourage them, and I put in, I think this is misspelled. It's not communion. It's communication. Okay, so mark it out. Put in communication. And what Paul does is he lets the people know that he's praying for them. And that's one of the things that I desire for us to do for one another. I mean, you can see the people that are missing around you because, again, most of you, you go to the same seats pretty much weekly. Okay. So look around and, and say, who is it that, that's missing? And who do I maybe need to, to send an email to or a text or, or make a phone call? Who can I encourage? Who can I let know that I'm praying for them? And again, I know that this can become overwhelming because if you do that for everybody that you pray for on your list, it might be like, well, I can't do that. But ask the God to lead you in that. There are definitely times where I, if I've been praying for someone or are um, praying for things or situations, there's definitely times where I think the Holy Spirit leads and says, you need to, to send a text and say, and there's just very simple text. Hey, I just want you to know I'm, I'm thinking about you and praying for you today. You don't know how encouraging that is to people. Or maybe you do because maybe you've received that from other people. But we need to communicate that we are praying for other people. We need to water the growth of spiritual growth, that we need to speak in love. We need to live out the gospel message to one another. And then the third thing is we need to be about persistent prayer. Because Paul says, I persistently pray for you. Listen to this example from Ironside, um, who was a young man in the, in the ministry, and he went to meet a man who was dying of um, cancer. And so as he's meeting this man, uh, his lungs were so gone uh, that he can only speak in a whisper. And this is what he says to Ironside. Young man, you are trying to preach Christ, are you not? Yes, I am, replied Ironside. Well, he said, sit down a little and let us walk through together the word of God. And he opened up his Bible and until his strength was gone, he opened up one passage after another, teaching truths that Ironside at that time had never seen or appreciated 
Before long, tears were running down Ironside's cheeks, and he asked, Where did you get these? Can you tell me where I can find a book that will open them up to me? Did you get them in a seminary or college? And the man replied, My dear young man, I learned these things on my knees, on the mud floor of a little sod cottage in the north of Ireland. There with my open Bible before me, I used to kneel for hours at a time and ask the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul and to open the word to my heart. And he taught me more and more on my knees on that mud floor than I could have ever gained in all the seminary or colleges in the world. See, it's that constant, the persistent going and falling down on our knees before a holy God that we find ourselves being ministered and growing in that knowledge and understanding of who he is. And so Paul rightly thanks and gives thanks for the faith and the love that the people have. So what is it about their faith that he gives thanks about? Well, the first thing, it's he gives thanks for faith in Christ. See, it's not just morals or ideas about God. And that's where some people stop. They, they have these ideas about a God. But what Paul's talking about is he's talking specifically to them of saying, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus I do not cease to give thanks, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. It's the gospel message. That's what he's asking and thanking them for. Hey, you guys have been true to the gospel message. You heard the gospel message and you've responded by becoming Christians. And so I'm praising you and giving God thanks that he's given you the ability to see that. But he also says, by faith. Because if we don't have faith, then the church will fail in its mission. So we're supposed to be growing in faith by the word and prayer. That's where we find strength. So that's where we're encouraged to continue to go back to the word and to be in prayer and to find the faith growing. And only is there the faith that he thanks them for, he also thanks them for love. Now, the word that he uses here is the agape love. And we know that therefore, in the Greek, there's multiple names for love. Here, it's used in the agape sense, which means it's a faithfulness. It's a commitment. It's an act of the will. We choose to love because without love, with our faith, then our faith is not genuine. That's why the 1 Corinthians 13 chapter, it says if there's not love, then everything that you've done, it doesn't matter. It has to be done in love. And this love that was given was for all the saints. See, we're supposed to love others. Listen to what um, Pastor Philip says in this regard. Proof is the love for which the devil has no answer. The love of Christians that is ready to give for brothers and sisters, the tears of one saint for the trials of another, the palpable joy in the Lord that makes true Christian fellowship. John writes, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. See, we have to show forth the gospel message. And if we're changed by Christ in our understanding and our love for him, then we begin to love other people well. Because it leads to repentance, which then leads to forgiveness and then a new obedience. It's a continual process. So that when things happen or somebody comes against you or you find yourself um, struggling with someone, you go back, you confess, you repent. And when you repent, it drives us to Christ. And when it drives us to Christ, there's forgiveness. And when there's forgiveness, then it leads to a new obedience. Listen to what Francis Schaeffer says in regards to this. 
Without true Christians loving one another, Christ says that the world cannot be expected to listen, even when we give proper answers. For after we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gave is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. If the world does not see this, it will not believe that Christ was sent by the Father. Great quote. If we're not loving the way that we're supposed to be loving, then we're the ones who are messing things up. Because as Christ has forgiven us, now we go forth and forgive as Christ has forgiven us. So we begin to understand that Paul is giving thanks in this prayer, and he's giving thanks for their faith and for their love. Then he enters into a time in verses 17 through 19, a time of intercession. And he begins his praise, very specific things for the saints. And the first thing he prays about is that they would have the knowledge of God. Now, the knowledge of God is here. It says, in the knowledge may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Verse 17, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the measurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? So he says the first thing that we need to know is we need to know and grow in our knowledge of God. Now, again, there's a lot of things about knowing about God that we can have without truly knowing him. So again, it's just like with us, when you go on and the younger people, when they deal with your YouTube heroes or whatever, or people you follow, um, the older generations of those that are on TV or sports figures or whatever, we can know a lot about people. We can read books. We can know when their um, birthdays are. We can know their favorite uh, foods. We can know all the kind of things. But I never get a card from them. They don't come by my house and talk to me. So there is a sense where we can know a lot about God without knowing who he is in a personal relationship. And so what Paul is saying, the greatest need for us to understand is to know God and to know him intimately. See, Satan deals with things like senses and passions. He deals with the externals, things that are momentary. But what God does is he wants us to understand who he is at the very core. He wants us to know who he is so that we might be able to live life the way we're supposed to. Pastor Strain says this, the biggest threat is an inadequate, anemic, and an impoverished knowledge of God in the church. Not just out there, but within the church. There's an anemic understanding of a lack of knowing who God is. Let me give you an illustration. Um, so those of you who are, are my age and older would recognize that we used to have to, to do home films, right, on actual film, right? And your parents would come out with a camera and they'd have those two big spotlights, at least my did, on a wooden board or whatever. And you can hear the camera. And uh, they would take these home movies and stuff like that. And you'd watch it usually when someone had a funeral or some of that. That was the only time you ever pulled those things out because you had to have a projector and all that kind of stuff. Well, then um, highfalutin uh, people came in and they started to, to upgrade things. And we had videotapes. Okay. Then it became more accessible. And you had the VHS videotapes and then you had the micro little mini tapes. And you had uh, all these different kind of tapes and stuff like that. Well, that became a part of our ministry um, for the youth ministry. And here's what I mean. Um, we used to do a thing called This Is Your Life videos. 
because we had this new fangled um, information at our disposal. So what we would do is we'd go in and we'd videotape doing kind of questions for these people who are older, and then we preserve it for the family so that they could view it later on. Because here's the reality for most of us. If you're younger, you don't care what the older people are saying. So what we would do is we'd videotape and then we'd send it to them so that they might have not just an understanding of who their relatives were, but it was something that they could keep and look back on. Paul's kind of, kind of doing the same thing. What really needs to happen for us as Christians is we need to really stop being busy and stop doing things for God and get to know God personally. See, sometimes that's our struggle, at least for me. Sometimes I can get so wrapped up in doing things for God that I forget to spend time with God. And when I do that, things begin to shift. Priorities begin to shift. And my understanding of who he is begins to fade. Again, we learned last week, what's, what's the more important thing, the gift or the giver? See, sometimes we get caught up in the gift when really the greatest thing that we receive is the giver of the gift. And so we need to make sure that we go deep into our understanding of who God is, which means we need to be in the word. We need to be in prayer. And if it's a struggle, and I know it's a struggle, then hold someone accountable. Hold yourself accountable. But again, if my relationship is only by what I said to my wife on my wedding day, then I'm going to be sad in regards to my relationship. I've got to grow in my knowledge. That's why I tell people all the time, I don't care how old you are. I don't care how many years you've been married. Still date. Still learn new things. Because this side of heaven, we'll never figure everything out. And so go deep in that understanding, that knowledge, and that communication. And when you do, then your relationship gets bigger and your love grows deeper. So that's what Paul's telling us. But he says the greatest thing is not just us knowing God, but that we're known by God. See, that's the great encouragement and strength for us. He wants our eyes of our heart to be enlightened, but they're to be enlightened because the truth that he's given to us is that we're fully known. And that's truly an amazing gift. Because again, if all of us had our private thoughts put up on the screen, we'd all be embarrassed. And yet God knows the very depths of the core of your sinfulness and still loves you so intimately. And he does that not because you've earned it, but because it's his choice to love you. And so we're going to know him, we're known by him, but then Paul speaks of very three specific things, hope, inheritance, and power. So in regards to hope, we understand that this is where he gives us our purpose. Listen, I want you to understand that the universe is not random. It's not fate. Okay? It's not the Disney World song. Okay? The universe is not random, which means that every one of our lives has a purpose. God has chosen us to fulfill a very specific purpose in his word. In his word, in his world, and in regards to taking out the gospel. He's created us for that purpose. And therefore, we should have security in that. Because the world is the Lord's. It's not the United States. It's not China. It's not Taiwan. It's not the Middle East. It's God's. 
God laughs at the plans of man. He laughs. Now, does that change how things affect us? No. But it doesn't change the fact that the world is his, and we are therefore never, ever abandoned. Never. And so we're not worried about the the situations or the trials and tribulations we go through. We have security. We are assured that God has a purpose for this world and his plans will be fulfilled. He's faithful to that and he uses us. So why worry? He says, so hope. And not only that, but then understand your inheritance. Now, again, this word of inheritance can mean two things. We're not really sure. It could be an inheritance that we begin to grasp and understand the greater of the scope of our inheritance in Christ, or it could be that we are the inheritance of God. Both can be true. So I want you to look at this. We are, the scope of our inheritance is where these are the blessings that are given to us. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says this, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now listen to this. Now I know in part Then I shall know fully, here's the kicker, even as I have been fully known. See, he's growing us in the scope of our inheritance. That's why we continue to grow in our knowledge of him. We continue to grow in our service to him. We continue to grow in our ministry to him and from him. We continue to grow. He doesn't. He fully knows us. He's fully Capable of everything. And one day, again, when we talked about last week, the new heavens, the new earth, we're finally going to get it. But at this point, right now, we see dimly. But it could also mean that we are God's inheritance. Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord for the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So again, we inherit things from God and we grow in that inheritance, but we also are become the inheritance of God. It's his heritage. And again, when you talk to people and you talk to people who are older and they have grandkids or great grandkids, what do they talk about? They talk about those kids. Now you might look and go, are those the same people that we're talking about? Because of church, they kind of run me over. They're out of control. Why would you think they're so blessed? Why would you think they're so great? Because it's their kids. It's their kids. And so they revel in that. And they tell you about it. They don't go around and say, do you know, you want to see a picture of something? Look at my 401k. Look at that. Do you see that number? That's an incredible number. You know what I can do with that? You know how many cruises I go on with that? They go, look at my grandkids. Look at my great-grandkids. This is my heritage. It's not what I leave to them. It's who they've become in their mind. How much more God to us. So he wants us to grow in our understanding of the inheritance, but he also wants to understand in regards to power. Now, again, there's an allusion to power, which the world has. And again, God laughs at that. But what Paul's wanting them to do is he's saying, I want you to reject this cultic power that's there in in Ephesus. Don't go with the false things because there's one who gives you true power, true power. Now, again, what happens to us is we begin to take our eyes off of focus of where it needs to be. 
Let me give you an example. As, as I was doing um, teaching uh, football, one of the skills we have is having them run through ropes or sometimes we make them run through tires. Okay? Now, the purpose of this is not just to be mean to the kids, but although sometimes we like watching them fall, but the idea is to, to, for them to not look down at their feet. So we run them through every day, every practice. They're supposed to run through the ropes. They're supposed to run through these tires. Now, the first couple of days, it's hilarious because they're looking down at their feet and they're stumbling over. They're trying to get through quickly. But as soon as they start to look down quickly, the thing I did as a coach was to humiliate them a little bit more and to come over and to push them over onto the ground. Now, there was a purpose behind that. And it wasn't just because I was mean. It was so that they would go through the process of running through that with their eyes open. They had to learn and keep a strong base, but keeping their eyes always open so that if someone was to come about, they wouldn't be killed on the field. A lot of times we take our eyes off of Christ. When we take our eyes off of Christ and we begin to run through the ropes or the tires, we begin to stumble and fall. And what happens is life or Satan comes and smacks us to the side and knocks us off. See, part of us growing in our understanding, part of us grasping the power that's given to us is to make sure we keep our eyes focused where they need to be, which is on Christ. And when they're focused on Christ, then it doesn't matter what comes at us, we're ready. And that's what the Apostle Paul is telling them. Hey, in verses uh, 20 through 23, here's what I want you to know. That he who worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he's saying, hey, I'm giving thanks. I'm interceding for you to grow in these things, but I want you to recognize and understand what you have at your disposal. And that first thing he says is resurrection power. Now I want you to, to under, grasp and understand this. He says, this is the great might, the great might of God. Because people start to ask questions. Can God really conquer my sin? Can God really do this thing? Now, who has ever resurrected anybody on this earth besides God. No one. It's why Abraham was so willing to go and take a knife and stab it in his son's heart as a sacrifice. Why? Because he knew God had the opportunity and the ability and the power to raise his son. He was told the promises. From this child is going to come many nations. God promised me that. He's always true to this promise. So if he tells me to kill him, I don't agree with it. Maybe I don't like it, but I'm going to obey. And he obeyed because he said, I know my God. My God has always been faithful, will be faithful. And so I'm going to continue to live in that. So here I go. I'm going to stab my knife into my son's heart. And then God stops him and he provides a sacrifice. And God does that for a reason. He's saying, I'm the one who has charge over death itself. But he tells us that power that he had to raise, resurrect Jesus from the dead is what's at your disposal now. You have the Holy Spirit within you if you're a Christian. 
That power is at your disposal. Now, I want you to understand in regards to this as a Holy Spirit, listen, he's not a force. Listen to what Simon the magician said in Acts chapter 8. He tried to buy the power. He says, give me this power also, so that anyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. And Simon then finally answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. See, Simon wanted power. And you see in the apostles come, they were doing miracles. They were a better magician than him, he thought. Hey, let me have this power so I can go out and do these miracles just like you. That would be cool. And then more people will give me money and I, I grow in my understanding and my fame. And they had to confront him and say, Simon, you don't have any idea. This isn't a power for which you to seek. This is a person. And the person is a part of the Trinity of God. And so we should be asking the question, how can the Holy Spirit have more of me? Not how can I use the Spirit. Not how can I can go out and do this in the power of the Spirit. But he's saying, how is the Spirit going to take my heart and use more of me? How is he going to change me? And when we have that understanding, when we understand that the Holy Spirit moves in that way, then he tells us not only is there the resurrection power, but he rules in authority. So he says, he seated him at God's right hand. Seated. Now again, the understanding back during this time is if you were a king, then you had positions of authority that you had. And the greatest authority was the one at the right hand of the, the king. But then he was there to serve the king. So what he's able to do is he's not just sitting there doing, going back and forth and doing all the bidding of the king. He's able to sit because it's done. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I have finished it. I've accomplished the purpose. And so now I sit at God's right hand because I have all authority. And that means no authority in all of the universe can oppose him. Look up Psalm 110. Nothing can come against God. And only is his authority um, all over the whole universe, but he is preeminent in all things. He's over all things. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. His name is greater than every name. And it says not only from this time, but forevermore. It's always Christ preeminent. And so we have resurrection power. We have ruling power. But then he finishes up with the power that's in the church. Now, that seems awfully strange that Paul would say it's in the church that we have found power from God. Now, why is that? Listen to Bonhoeffer in regards to this. A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another. For listen, I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. 
Likewise, Paul's life of prayer no doubt fueled his patience and love for the often wayward churches he oversaw. Our church is perfect. No. Do we mess it up? Yes. Is it still the chosen means for God to bring about his power and show it to the world? Yes. He comes and he creates us to be very unique. Brian Chapel begins this study by talking about um, a church that meets on a bus because if they're found out, they would be taken into prison. The pastor killed, the men tortured and put into prison for the rest of their life, the women tortured, put in prison, and the kids taken to camps where they'll be given new training. Now he brings up the point, why are they even meeting? Why go through the trouble of getting on a bus weekly and still singing and praying together and loving one another? I mean, they could do these in their individual homes. They can do this in private. They can do it in quiet. What is so overwhelming that's driving them? And he responds with these four things, and I think they're great. So I'm going to give them to you, but they're Brian Chapels. They're not mine. Um, he says these four things in regards to the church. There's no mavericks. You don't do this on your own. You only do it within the course of other brothers and sisters. There's no deserters. He says, yes, the bride might become irrelevant to us. And this can be quite easy. This is his quote. This can be quite easy to do because the church can be intolerant, intractable, tradition-bound, blind to her duty, and a pain to endure. She can be an ugly bride, but she is the beloved of Christ and the only instrument that will ultimately fulfill the purposes on this earth. And then there's no despair. She is the means that Christ will use to fill the world with his glory so we don't worry about the setbacks and apparent losses. We continue to go because even the gates of hell will not prevail. And then there's no surrender. See, we are committed to a church that has its power, not from the world, but from the heavenly places. So this is what he tells us in regards to the church power. The church brings glory and honor to Christ and to him alone, but he does it through the body of believers. And as messed up as we are, we're it. As sinful as, as, as we are, we're forgiven. As maligned as we are by other people within this church or other churches, there's forgiveness, there's grace, there's mercy. And we love because he first loved us. And again, when we get that, then people begin to notice because anybody can fight for their rights. When somebody stops and says, I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you because I love you because Christ first loved me. Then all those arguments, all those things go away. And we unite in Christ. And when we do that, we build each other up. And as we build each other up, people tend to notice 
And when they notice, then we grow. And as we grow, we give thanks. So that's Paul's encouragement to us. Give thanks for the things you see in your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let them know. Communicate it with them. Then intercede. Intercede for one another. You don't know what to pray for? Pray Paul's prayer. I want you to know Christ so intimately. I want you to know the hope that you've been received in. I want you to grasp and understand and grow in your inheritance. I want you to grasp and understand the power that's at your disposal. And as you see it, then you might understand the power that brought back Jesus from the dead and that he has all authority. So there's nothing that we can do as a church that can ever thwart what we're going to do. Does it mean it doesn't get hard? Yes, it's going to get hard. He told us it's going to get hard. But he doesn't win. Satan doesn't win. God does. And so I'm asking you, I'm begging you as your pastor, hear the words of Paul. And I would beg you to come out tonight. I know it's, it's not easy. We're trying to make it at an hour where people can come back out so you're not worried about the darkness so much. If you can't drive in the dark, find a ride with someone that can. But come and pray for God's church, His will to be done, His ministry. Let's unite together. Because there are no mavericks. Only body of Christ united in him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you've given to us this prayer. The prayer of praise for the things that you've done. You've redeemed us. You've called us your own. You've made us adopted children into your kingdom. You've forgiven us of our sins. You've, you've brought to us a righteousness through Christ. And so we give you all praise and honor. But Lord, then you continue by giving us this prayer of intercession and thanks. And then you remind us of the power that we have by the Holy Spirit that indwells your people to live as becomes followers of Christ. And so, Father, as we have opportunity, may we do that. May we be the church that does hear and understands and gives thanks and communicates it to those others and encourage them to strengthen them that they might live in the midst of trials and tribulations. Then, Lord, may we intercede for one another that we might grow first and foremost in the knowledge of who you are. Lord, we need to know you intimately. And as we know your heart and as we know your mind, then you transform us by your word. You transform us by our prayers. You transform us in your fellowship that you've given to us. And as such, then we find that we can live by the power that you've given to us through the Holy Spirit. And so, fathers, find us to be faithful in the call that you've given to us, loving one another encouraging one another and taking this out to a lost world who's dying, literally dying to hear the gospel message preached and lived out afresh before them. May we be found faithful to the calling that you've given to us. For we pray all of this by the power of your Holy Spirit, but we pray it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen.